Welcome to Ed Talks, an audio podcast presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Ed Talks is a lively series of community conversations about public education and related issues that impact our young people. Each Ed Talks features two compelling short presentations by cutting edge educators, youth advocates, students, artists, or community leaders. Ed Talks is supported by generous grants from the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. This Ed Talk focuses on storytelling as a tool to empower and build empathy. Our featured speaker is Tia Roseman Clark. Tia is the co founder and executive director of Green Card Voices, a nonprofit that utilizes storytelling to share personal narratives of immigrant youth and adults to foster tolerance and establish better understanding between immigrant and non immigrant communities. Born in Yugoslavia, Tia has interviewed more than 400 immigrants from over 120 countries and is the editor of the organization's six volumes of compelling stories. This Ed Talk was recorded in front of a live audience at Ice House in Minneapolis on May 6, 2019. And uh, I'm pretty excited. That's what I tell all, all of our storytellers. You have to tell your brain you're not nervous, that you're excited. <laughs> and you have to repeat it three, three times. So I'm excited to be here. I am very, very excited to be here. And I'm really especially excited to be here. <laughs> uh, so, um, where to start my story? Um, I guess my story started, um, this uh, man behind me was a ruler of our country from 1943 to 1980, Josip Broz Tito, I don't know if any of you have heard heard of him, but um, when he passed away, when I was four years old, um, this long era of, uh, um, you know, had ended, and um, People really didn't get along. Um, I really remember fantastic things about my childhood, not knowing that they, you know, things were brewing. But it was a wonderful country with republics. Um, you can see all of them, you know, Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, Macedonia, um, Montenegro, there were two provinces, Vojvodina and Kosovo. Eight of these small republics are now independent countries. And we went through hell and back in the past 12 years. The crazy thing is that the very first war actually started in my um, republic, Republic of Slovenia, and it lasted only 10, um, if I go back, it's, oops, it's uh, on the very top, it's on the very top. But it was very far away from Serbia, so Serbia eventually just abandoned us and after 10 days, uh, only about 40 people passed away. Um, but the extreme, extreme and long war continued in Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina and uh, ultimately 100,000 people died uh, and 2 million were displaced. Um, but during the 10 days that there was war in Slovenia, it was very, very intense because no one was expecting it. Um, it was a 
end of June, I turned 15. The summer had just started, um, and you know, there was tanks moving around our country and um, constant air raid sirens, and there were barricades on in the capital of our city. Um, and like I said, it was really the very beginning. Um, I think as the thing progressed, we were sort of expecting, um, and it became normalized, we got used to it. But initially, it was really, really shocked. It was like living in a movie, but it really wasn't a movie. I was really excited to look for a photo um, of, this is, that that's me, <laughs> and my sister, of how I looked, uh, because literally, in, I feel in a week, I lost all my, you know, childhood innocence. And I always go back, um, you know, now that I work with young people about, you know, about me during that time, being uh, a young teen and having to just, you know, realize that this is what had happened. I remember very clear, we, clearly we had just gotten a puppy, uh, three months old after begging our parents, because we lived in public housing and we only had a you know, tiny small two-bedroom apartment, but we were like begging, 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 fifth floor, yes, we will take the dog out five, you know, three times a week for sure, even though we didn't have an elevator, like we promised all of that. Um, so it was very exciting. Um, the, what happened after, is that you know that experience had such a profound effect on me, and the war had continued, like I said. So all the refugees from Bosnia and Croatia started coming north, and um, there was so so many. And I immediately started volunteering, and eventually starting uh, even in university, working day, night, weekends, um, mostly predominantly with the uh, Bosniak, which is Bosnian Muslim refugees. Um, they were um, predominantly um, and mostly. Um, and very, very unjustly affected uh, during the war that ended in 95 um, with the genocide uh, that um, on, on um, July 11th where over 8,000 boys, 11 and older and men were brutally murdered. Um, while I was working in the refugee camp, and I swear to God, has to do a lot of luck um, that I'm standing here today, um, there was an organization called Open Society Institute, George Soros Foundation, and they were like, we're gonna give away four scholarships, why don't you fill out this form, you look like you fill the profile. I did, uh, not really thinking of anything. My parents, very, very middle class, um, and nowhere ever traveled or lived outside of the country. But I filled in through the process of um, interviews, and I had to write a bunch of essays, and. Uh, next thing I know, I was one of these four people that got a scholarship, and I <laughs> moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, to make the story worse, it was an all-female dorm of 18-year-olds because they said international students cannot be trusted, although I was like much older and mature, I might say. Um, and like... You know, they couldn't even drink. I mean, it was just crazy. Anyway, um, and it was quite something. Um, and, you know, as immigrants, some people come by choice. Some people are forced to flee. For me, it was love. Uh, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I met my husband. Um, we are still together. Uh, <laughs> and have two daughters. 
But I was one of those people, look, America is great, but it's not that great, and I have a lot to do at home, so I really have to go back, because there's like refugee repatriation starting now, and you know, it's really brewing in Kosovo, so you know, like, I've got stuff to do. So I, I went back, and we, he went with me, we worked in Kosovo, and eventually 2001 um, came to New York University, because I got another scholarship to go to grad school there, um, when I was done, and I actually, um, everybody was saying, oh, you should do a PhD, you know, in another private university, your future is going to be set. I was like, well, but my New York professor keeps on um, saying Baltics, and it's Balkans. So I don't think I should be studying Bosnian genocide in New York City. So I went back to a huge surprise to everybody. And I was like, well, I'm just gonna study my, my, you know, my research back home. So I did an oral history degree interviewing the survivors of the war in Srebrenica, of the genocide. Yes, so very, very intense. The only thing I can say that made me survive this four years was giving birth to two babies. So I was like, oh, there is life and death, like a lot of death, but there is also life. So that constant reminder kept me going. And uh, which brings me to 2012, where our daughters were three and five, and my husband said, you know, we really should think about, you know, where we want to raise them. And at a time, you know, as much as I loved my country and believed we should really do everything, I should do everything to, to help heal the country, I, like so many immigrants, was dealing with two little children, uh, females, I might, I might say, in a very, very sexist you know, society where females weren't really respected. And I just said, you know what, it's not just me. I had to think about my daughters too. So we moved to Minneapolis, 2012, became homeowners too, <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> in fact, I was even telling my husband like, oh my gosh, I don't think we should get a house because, you know, socialist propaganda was like, oh, like, you will have so much work, you'll have to replace the roof, like, all these things, I was like, they totally brainwashed me. I was like, I think we should live in a condo, like, no house. But now it's all great, and I love it. But I'm telling you all this is, um, I couldn't get a job. Everybody was like, New York University, that's awesome, but what is this? University of Nova Gorica? I was like, Nova Gorica. And they were like, what? Anyway, it didn't sound very good. And like any you know, immigrant, um, in fact, we did a book on immigrant entrepreneurship. Um, you know, a lot of immigrants become entrepreneurs not because they're incredible entrepreneurs, but because they are fed up with not being respected. And they're like, you know what? I can do better, and even if I build from scratch, it's still gonna be better than someone being my boss. So that's what I do. A group of us came together, and we were like, we don't like what's happening. Like, we immigrants need to step up. We need to start sharing our stories. You know, oral history, digi digital narratives, this was all coming together. And, um, you know, someone wrote a book, Green Card Stories. We're like, this should be an organization. It was like two years before Trump. So we're like sensing something's brewing. And we're, you know, started a small nonprofit. Uh, I had a desk at the Intermedia Arts for four years. Um, and 
really, really believe that immigrant, we should create a platform where immigrants authentically share their stories, uh, full stop. Uh, because we felt we need to um, provide a counterweight. The narratives that were existing were about Ellis Island, a lot of it. Still, immigration through a historical lens was a lot about uh, the undocumented um, folks who definitely need our support, but it's not the only narrative. It was a lot about the immigrants, um, uh, excuse me, it was a lot about the refugees and you know the global refugee crisis. And then it was, oh, the few cool stories, rags to riches. Yeah, let's talk about those, the 0 0.0001, um, you know, like Rihanna. And nothing made sense. Um, the only thing that did uh, make sense is that to really show, uh, provide a platform for people to share their stories, like how they're actually working. And deep down, we did know that United States, despite current hurdle, it's just temporary, I think, has something really, really, really amazing to give to the world. If you look at the percentage of immigration in our country, is by far the largest of any other percentages in the world. And I truly don't like the word immigrant nation because I think the voices of people that were brought here by force and the native voices are extremely important. But I do want to say that looking at globally, United States should be the leader how immigrants are welcomed and not be the leader in how immigrants are not welcomed. Thank you. So, how many more minutes? I'm sorry. Eighteen, seven. Okay. So, when I was studying um, genocide, the entire quest, all of my studies, you know, way too much education, trying to find out why did this happen, right? Like, why do people dislike each other to the point they kill, you know, large, large, large groups? And I realized, after all these studies, it starts very, 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 um, it starts way before the actual act actually is committed, right? And I see a lot of it in this country today. I'm not trying to say we're going to have a genocide in four years but I see a lot of the same things that were happening in my country of Yugoslavia, and we also never expected a genocide. What I know, and it's the only thing that works, is empathy is like a muscle. If you don't exercise, it's gonna get weaker. If you do more of it, it's gonna, get, it's gonna expand. So intentional diversity, reaching out to people that are different, takes you from a comfort zone into the learning zone. It's a process that isn't comfortable, but it's supposed to happen if you want to grow and live together inclusively. Thank you. And what we also know is that storytelling, when people share authentically, and when people listen, not hear, big difference, when people listen, 
something incredible happens. Same parts of our brain light up. They did MRI studies. It's the one study that I believe in, and I can send you the link. They did the MRI study, social studies. People authentically sharing stories to one another about pain. Same pain parts of the brain were lighting up and so forth. And this is how that happens. If we are not reaching out to one another, that does not happen. I want to quickly, because um, I know you're educators, we, we, I want to quickly tell you about the organization. So we were recording stories. We were st recording stories and still are recording stories in a unique way. We prepare the students, giving them six open-ended questions a month in advance. They prepare, they're comfortable, they know what they're gonna talk about. We create safe space because we believe you know, in trauma-informed process that um, then they share the story. We co-edit the videos with them so that they're always in control. They're the driver of their story. Um, we are just supporting them in writing the essay. A lot of the immigrants are like, oh my gosh, there's so much in English that I have to think about but we provide them the transcript of their oral you know, narrative, which is they're so much better in oral than they are in written. So this is a great, great lead. And um, you know, they, they participate in the design, the launch, but most importantly, they do a lot of readings. Uh, readings for which they're compensated for, readings that are very well attended, and it's like I have Anna, my, my colleague here, and for us this past three years has been insane because we went from this is great resource to have to Trump to this is essential resource to have. How soon can you come to Alabama? So, uh, in the past three years we have expanded um, and we have not only started publishing books, which are collections of the stories. There is a Green Card Youth Voices Minneapolis, St. Paul. Does any, has anybody heard of these books? Yes? Yes? 15,000 sold, and this year we got a national distributor. So um, Fargo has one, Atlanta has one. Um, this year we worked with Milwaukee and Madison because it was very important for us to go to purple states. Um, so super excited about that. We're also publishing adult stories. Um, collection of entrepreneur stories is already out. STEM Voices is coming out in the fall. Um, incredible stories, really. We want to both um, let you know folks know, general audience, amazing things immigrants are doing, but also provide a representation for immigrant youth to see themselves uh, perhaps in the future. Um, I would like to say that we did our first um, large impact study this spring. Um, a school in Wisconsin called us up and they said, we have extreme bullying problem and we're doing an all-read. We're doing it in, on immigration. An all-read means that an entire school, 2,000 students and 200 teachers read one book. They said, we want to buy Green Card Youth Voices Minneapolis book. Do you have 2,200 copies? And I said, we can't have, yes. <laughs> we had to print some. But what I'm trying to say, <laughs> of course we didn't. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that um, we um, 
asked folks before the book and after the book what they thought about the word immigrant or the word immigration. This is what they told us before. So um, the largest is the word foreign, Mexican, illegal, country, Trump, wall, travel, America, undocumented, refugee, border, struggle, Donald, This is what happened after. Family, important, difficult, immigrant, story, struggle, hard, hardship, support, leaving, trying, successful, better, opportunity, lonely, and the word immigrant. Um, I have to, can I have three extra minutes, possibly? I'm so sorry. This is like the most important part of my slideshow. Now, finally. I just want you to walk away with three things that I have learned interviewing now 150 immigrant youth. Three things. First thing is belonging. The one thing these kids and what I needed when I was here at 19 is to feel like they belong. And when I come into a classroom, one easy thing I do is I say, do you know which is like the most spoken language in, United, in, in, the, world, in the world? And they're like, I don't know, Spanish, Chinese. So they're trying to guess. And I always say, English with an accent. <laughs> and they're like, whoa. And I'm like, who here, I pretend I don't know, who here speaks some English with an accent. Everybody's like, me. And I'm like, me too. Let me all give you five high fives. And everybody wants to belong, even if it's like, who has black shoes today? You know, anything you can come up with, make sure these kids feel like they belong. Second thing, trauma. I will tell you, um, I went through... Helen back, I ended up doing the peace march, 110 miles from Srebrenica to the safe zone uh, seven years ago to heal just from doing my PhD about trauma. You can have a secondary trauma from studying trauma. And I will tell you that in October, we recorded six stories of the Rohingya youth in Milwaukee, and I still think about them at night. How it is to go from Bangladesh 1,200 miles to Malaysia with not about enough food on the boat for one month and how you see bodies being thrown in the water while you're traveling. These are the kids that may be in your classroom. And they need to be heard. They need to be feel safe. They can't study. They first need to talk about it or get help somehow. It's very, very real. And lastly, I want to talk about empowerment. It is crazy what happens once these individuals are empowered to know they have a voice. No one will fight for them as much as they will fight for themselves 
for people that are coming behind them and for people that are ahead of them, their parents, no one. They will fight the strongest. And what we need to do is support them. This is a picture of Zainab Abdi. She shared her story for the first time for Green Card Voices Project. Many years ago, for now, she has since gone on to United Nations twice to share her story about her Yemeni experience, giving voice to countless that today don't, but are starving in thousands. Her story, after the Muslim ban was announced, was shared over 20,000 times, 19,000 times. And you probably know that in January, Malala co-wrote a book called We Are Displaced, with Zainab Abdi's story being in the book with Malala, taking 45 pages of the book, which is actually more than Malala's story. What I'm trying to say is that this is one student who was empowered and provide, was provided with um, expertise, how to do public speaking, encouraged, paid for their time. And lastly, I'm going to just conclude with this, and I'm going to read it. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And please, I too thought that someone's gonna stop the war. United Nations, surely. People can just watch, have this happen. But they did, and it's really, really up to us. Thank you very much. Ed Talks is presented by Achieve Minneapolis and the Citizens League in partnership with Indigo Education and Pollen. Thanks to our generous sponsors, the Bush Foundation and the Vern C. Johnson Family Foundation. For more information on Ed Talks or to watch Ed Talks videos or listen to audio podcasts, visit AchieveMPLS.org.